You are listening to The Overwhelmed Brain. Today's episode is sponsored by The Scott Allen Turner Show, The Financial Rockstar. Scott guides you to get out of debt, pay less taxes, save more money, avoid getting ripped off, retire rich, and even tells you how to grill a great burger. Visit scottallenturner.com forward slash brain and get a free audiobook called 99-Minute Millionaire now. I want to be a millionaire. Are you annoyed by affirmations? Are you tired of that same old rehashed personal growth advice that all seems to boil down to think positively and all your problems will go away? If affirmations feel like lies and positive thinking feels like denial, then I want you to get ready. The Overwhelmed Brain is here to help you create the life you want now. Hello, this is Paul Coliani, personal empowerment coach and host of this show called The Overwhelmed Brain. And this is the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. I want to help you bridge the gap between your emotions and reason, causing you to discover why you do the things you do and what you can do to reach higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and overwhelm. Everything I talk about in this show should not be mistaken for actual medical advice or treatment and is intended to be for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your medical treatment. What you'll find here is an increase in your emotional intelligence, a strengthening of your self-worth and self-esteem, the motivation to be your authentic self, and the forward momentum to help you learn, heal, grow, and evolve. All right, I got an interesting request from uh, someone in the patron program. So, Lisa, this is for you. (laughs) She said, I was wondering if you could discuss the difference between guilt and shame. I recently read on something John Bradshaw wrote. He wrote the following, shame is a being wound and differs greatly from the feeling of guilt. Guilt says I've done something wrong. Shame says there is something wrong with me. Guilt says I've made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. Lisa asked, do I agree with that? I'm going to say that I do agree with that. I don't disagree with it, (laughs) but I don't think it wholly encompasses Everything it is, and of course, you can't wholly encompass something in a single quote, but I really like the idea that what he's saying is that you do one thing and you are something, meaning you do something to make you feel guilty, but then when you feel ashamed, you are that thing as if you are broken. And so the difference that uh, John Bradshaw is pointing out is that Shame is something you are being, and guilt is something you are feeling. Guilt is something you have done or do, and shame says there's something wrong with me. I am broken. I am the mistake. So that's John Bradshaw's uh, take on shame and guilt. Now, where I go with that, like I said, I don't disagree with it. In fact, I think it's a very good way to look at it, If it helps you, if it serves you in the sense that when you look at it, you go, whoa. So when I'm feeling shame, I actually feel like there's something wrong with me. And by thinking that there's something wrong with you, 
then you think that you need fixing. You need to be repaired. And being in that space is not fun. Being in that space is harder to get out of than something you do. Like, I'm doing guilt. And it's a terrible way to put it, but <laughs> uh, I feel guilty because I did something. I am guilty or ashamed because I am something. There's a difference. I mean, you could tell the way I worded it there that if you say I've done something, I've done some sort of behavior that made me feel a certain way, it's a lot different than saying I am a certain way, therefore I do this behavior. I am broken, therefore this is the behavior I do. That's so much harder to get out of. It's a deeper, darker hole to crawl out of, which is, I think, where John Bradshaw is going. When you're in that deeper, darker hole, then you have a lot more work to do than just to say, wow, I did something that I feel guilty about or ashamed about. Uh, maybe I can do something else to make up for that. That's a lot different than saying, wow, I am a shameful person. I am a guilty person. I am being those things. Therefore, if I don't find a cure, then I will always be those things. And then I will carry that with me throughout life. And that can be devastating. You don't want to carry guilt or shame or any of that stuff throughout life. That's what we talk about here. It's like repressed emotions. These repressed negative emotions, the longer you carry them, the more your life doesn't turn out the way you want it to turn out, the less uh, enjoyment you have in life, the more chance you'll end up with uh, maybe toxic people in your life because your boundaries are down, your emotional walls aren't uh, stable, they can be knocked down easily, and people can take advantage of you or uh, manipulate you, abuse you. So when you're carrying around any of these negative repressed emotions or just negative emotions in general, they don't really have to be uh, repressed, I guess. Uh, but when you're carrying them around, it opens you up. It makes you more vulnerable in a bad way. There's a difference between being vulnerable in a good way, which is, hey, I'm here to share with you what is going on in my life. It's a very sensitive place in me, but I trust you to the point where I know that you're not going to hold it against me or make me feel broken or wrong. That kind of vulnerability is strength. When you can approach someone like that, where you feel vulnerable to share yourself, to be authentic, that's power. But when you feel vulnerable because you're feeling shame or guilt or embarrassment or fear or all these other things that you could essentially carry around with you for a long time, that kind of vulnerability can be easily taken advantage of. And people do take advantage of it. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but that's what happens. That's why the, the kindest, most compassionate, most caring, giving people end up with manipulators and emotional abusers. Because if you are kind and caring and compassionate, but you're a people pleaser and you have some emotional pain inside of you, some people will take advantage of that emotional pain and uh, create a relationship with you that isn't necessarily in your best interest or theirs. I mean, because abusers, uh, manipulators, they need healing too. And if they find someone that exacerbates who they are in a bad way, then they're not going to find the healing that they need from you because you may not have the emotional strength to stand up and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. 
What you're doing is making me feel bad. It's disrespectful. What you're doing, I won't take these lies that you're giving me if they're lying, or I won't take this manipulation because I can see it happening. When they don't have that as their feedback, they continue being who they are too. So that's why it's important to understand uh, the difference between those two types of vulnerability. There's vulnerability from a place of pain, and then there's vulnerability from a place of power. And if you can heal this negativity inside of you, if you have that, then the vulnerability shifts from the pain to the power. Which is why when we go back to this quote by John Bradshaw, where he says, when you are shame, when you are this broken being, it's so much harder to get out of that. So what do you do when you know you're broken? I know you're not broken, but you believe you are. You believe that I am shame. I am guilt. I am bad or broken or wrong. Well, that goes along the lines of self-worth and self-esteem. When you have low self-esteem, it's from many years of feeling low self-worth. Self-worth is, and these are my definitions, self-worth is the measurement of your own value based on how other people treat you. It's very external and it usually starts in childhood. So you measure your own worth, your own value based on how other people treat you. Whereas self-esteem, that stems from how valuable you feel. And that happens over years and years and years of how you're treated by other people. If you take it in. I mean, some people are resilient. If you were one of those resilient and very tolerant kids and you were made to feel less worthy, but you decided, no, they're wrong. I know I'm worthy. That doesn't happen often, but it can. If you've reached that inside of you, no, I know I'm worthy, then that would have raised your, your self-esteem. But, you know, most of us who were not made to feel worthy when we were younger, we grow up with a lack of self-esteem. And now, not only do we feel worthless, but we don't have the confidence to do a lot of things in life, and we're probably holding in some anger and sadness and other things that will get us the results we don't want, will put us in that painful, vulnerable place. And of course, if you're in that painful, vulnerable place, well, what do some people tend to do? They build very strong defensive walls. They put on an emotional armor so that no one can hurt them. I mean, that's what some people do. That's not what I did, but um, I've met people that have this very strong, very disconnected from their emotions because their emotional armor is so thick that they themselves can't access it. I know you probably know someone with an emotional disconnect, someone who's detached in a way. And, uh, you know, that can happen. You go through so many feelings of worthlessness or other pain or abuse that you put on this thick emotional armor so you don't have to access any emotions, not even the good ones. And that's no way to live life. That's why I'm here doing this show is because if you're not accessing those good emotions, those emotions of joy and happiness and not even that, maybe even peace. You just want to feel peace or satisfaction, something middle ground, middle of the road. Then that's a lot better than holding on to any of the pain and the shame and the fear and the guilt and the embarrassment and everything else that you could feel that you don't want to feel. And sometimes this stuff has been in there for so long, you don't even know it's in there. I mean, you ever have that happen? 
somebody says something or you're watching a movie and there's a particular plot point that comes up and suddenly you're emotionally triggered and you're crying and you don't know why. Or you get angry and you don't know why. I used to wake up from uh, dreams and feel anxious or angry and I'd be like, what in the world did I dream? (laughs) What was I dreaming that made me feel this way? And that could actually ruin my whole day. I used to wake up with anxiety. That's because there were uh, repressed things that I hadn't addressed and didn't think I had a problem with them. And until I had a breakdown, sort of, at 35, uh, then this stuff started coming out and I started addressing it, started uh, dealing with it, started processing and healing through it. And it can be tough. If you have no resources whatsoever, you're by yourself, you don't have anyone to trust to share your stuff with, to express yourself to, then it can take a little longer because now you're seeking resources yourself. But that's why this show is here. That's why there are other people out there trying to help, giving you books and videos. And there are counselors and therapists and coaches and support groups. I always promote support groups because there are particular things that happen in your life that you've gone through that you think uh, nobody else is suffering the way you are. But they are. And I found that out through like my girlfriend who is a sexual abuse survivor, and she went to a sexual abuse support group for, I don't know, a couple, three years, and she found out that, wow, now she realizes that it's the symptoms that she's having, which she thought were maybe normal in her life, she didn't like them, but she thought they were normal, were what other survivors were having as well. And that really opened her eyes and really helped her heart heal and get through some of the stuff that she uh, went through. So let me uh, rewind it back to my definition of uh, guilt and shame. Because Lisa's question was, you know, what do you think? Do you agree with John's definition? I'd be like, I don't disagree, like I said. And I think it's a good way to look at it. My personal definition has more to do with internal references and external references. I'll explain. Uh, Shame, in my opinion, comes from outside of you. It's the feeling you get when you know others know you've done something you're not proud of or you regret or you feel guilty about. Shame is very externally based. For example, if there was no one else on the planet and just you, would you feel shame for something you did? Well, let's just say that a year ago you did something to someone and you felt ashamed by it. And then that person and no one else existed. Would you still feel shame? You might. I mean, when I try that on, I might go there like, oh, I feel so ashamed. But typically, shame is reinforced by others because you know that they're thinking badly of you, even if they aren't. You just, quote, know they're thinking badly of you. So you feel shame. So I think that's very externally based most of the time. Whereas guilt comes from inside you. It's when you regret something that you did to someone else. Now, guilt can lead to shame. I feel guilty. And then someone looks at me and goes, I can't believe you did that. And then that shame feeling starts. But uh, to me, it's all a matter of internally based or externally based. Shame comes from outside of you, from other people. And guilt comes from inside of you, uh, from how you feel about yourself and what you did. It's sort of like um, tapping into your moral or ethical compass. It's like knock, knock. You've been immoral. You've been unethical. So now you have to feel bad about it. Guilt is your own battle with yourself. 
whereas shame is sort of a battle with other people's perception of you, other people's judgments about you. So that's where I go with shame and guilt. And uh, I think the big question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with the guilt? Well, I've already had an episode on guilt very recently, so just look that up. Uh, go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com and just type in uh, guilt in the little search field, and you'll see uh, one, two, maybe three or more episodes where I talk about guilt. But shame, um, I have an article on that. If you go to the same website, theoverwhelmedbrain.com, and type in the word shame in the search field, you'll find an article I did, but not necessarily a podcast episode. I think shame ends up going away uh, when you start feeling okay in yourself, when that guilt feeling goes away, because shame to me kind of has a make amends feel. Like I need to make amends so people don't judge me, or I need to do something that people see that I'm a good person or that I'm making up for something. I'm kind of thinking off the cuff here, but that's where I go with it, is that when I feel ashamed, I feel like I want to hide from others. And if I hide and they don't see me, then I don't have to feel so ashamed. I don't have to have that feeling. That's why I think uh, if I were to make amends, then I wouldn't feel so ashamed. I'm not saying that that's the solution. That's just saying that's what I'm thinking about on the fly here. If I were to make up for it somehow, then that shame feeling would go, go away or decrease a little bit. But maybe not. It may not be that way for you. Maybe you've done something so heinous and awful that you have all this guilt and you feel all this shame. And that's where I tell you to go ahead and listen to that guilt episode because you don't want to carry guilt with you. I tell you what, if, even if you were the biggest betrayer in the world, if you feel bad about that and you're not doing the betraying anymore, it's time to move on from that. Listen to that episode on guilt so that you don't have to carry this stuff with you because if you carry it with you, life doesn't go well. Life doesn't feel good. The people around you don't feel good. In fact, the people around you will keep that shame on you if you aren't able to heal from your guilt. So I think that's a good way to close this. If you're feeling shame, heal from your guilt. Listen to that episode. Explore what's going on inside of you. And like I said, I addressed that in the episode. So I hope this helps. Thank you, Lisa, for being in the patron program and suggesting this topic. Great topic. And I enjoyed uh, exploring it. hope this gives you some idea of where I take it. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with Ask Paul right after this. Welcome back. I want to share with you a story. In 2008, I had it going on. <laughs> I owned a condo in Florida. I had a renter paying me more than my mortgage and my HOA fees combined. I lived in California with the woman that was to become my wife, and I really had things in place. Then my renter stopped paying. Eventually, I had to evict her. I mean, she did stop paying. I couldn't afford to have her there anymore. After she was evicted, my realtor went into the unit and found that it had been totally trashed. All that work I put into the condo, the new carpet, the new kitchen, the new paint, in only nine months had to all be updated or replaced again. My realtor even found a cat that the tenant left behind. 
I was 3,000 miles away when all this was taking place. And I tell you what, that was the most financial stress I had ever felt. The money and the work it would take to make the condo livable again was just too much for me to handle. I got completely soured on renting it again. And besides, I had to renovate the unit and uh, I didn't have that kind of money. So I ended up putting it up for sale. And without anyone paying rent, I was starting to, what my girlfriend likes to say, hemorrhage money. (laughs) The condo never sold and I got in more debt than I'd ever been in my life. I eventually had to declare bankruptcy. I didn't know what else to do or who to turn to. I simply didn't know. I want to tell you that you never have to feel alone or not know what to do because today's sponsor has the answer to anything financial. His name is Scott Allen Turner, and he's known as the financial rock star. He calls himself a former money moron, which I can totally relate, and has made most of the money mistakes that every one of us has probably made in our life. But now he's on FIRE, F-I-R-E, which stands for Financially Independent Retired Early. This is who I want you to tune into and start taking control of your finances. Scott, where were you in 2008? (laughs) I needed you desperately. I wonder how my life would have turned out had I found him back then. I might actually have no bankruptcy on my credit history, and life would probably be completely different today. I learned the hard way, but you don't have to. I want you to tune into the podcast, Financial Rockstar, with Scott Allen Turner, and listen to his very simple and actionable advice on how to get out of debt faster, save more money, budget, invest, and retire early. I tell you what, I still need to learn how to budget. (laughs) So I'll be looking for his episodes on that. Scott says, this is not your parents' boring financial show. The down-to-earth discussion about money is entertaining and inspiring, whether you're earning your first dollar or are wondering where to stash your piles of cash. (laughs) Scott became debt-free at 35. He's got no mortgage, and he's a self-made millionaire with 15 years of personal financial knowledge. He's been featured on Forbes.com, U.S. News and World Report, and Business Insider. He's not here to sell you anything. He just wants to teach you about making more money and utilizing the money you have in the best possible way. In fact, he's even made his best-selling book into a free audiobook for you called 99-Minute Millionaire. You can go directly to scottallenturner.com forward slash brain and listen to it right away. He's not asking you to sign up for his mailing list or anything. He just wants you to have it free. Visit scottallenturner.com forward slash brain and check out that book, tune into his podcast, and learn what it takes to become a financial rock star yourself. That's scottallenturner.com forward slash brain. All right, welcome back to Ask Paul. This is where I read a listener email on the air and do my best to help them through a challenge. This letter, I'm going to say their name is Terry. All right, Terry says, I enjoy listening to your podcast while I'm at work and love pondering new perspectives on the variety of topics you discuss. I would appreciate hearing your opinion on an issue that I've been struggling with involving things that trigger my fear of rejection and abandonment. Last year, I entered an intense relationship with a woman who lived across the country from me. She put a lot of pressure on me to move myself and my children out to live with her. However, we were not on the same timeline. She was very manipulative, and I began suffering from a lot of anxiety with her. Last spring, I bought her a ticket to come back uh, to me for another visit. 
The day before she was to travel, she sent me a Dear John email basically saying how bad she was suffering emotionally and she just wanted time alone to recover. Then she blocked me on all media accounts. I assume you mean like social media. I went into complete panic. I was floored and in total shock as this came out of nowhere. The next day I received an email from another woman saying that she thought we had a few things in common about my ex. It turned out that my ex was having an affair for the past month with this woman. That person broke it off with her at the same time as I did. Long story short, eventually my ex and I had a deep heart-to-heart over what happened and she answered all my questions and she said she didn't understand why she did this. It was not like her. And then she promised to get therapy. I ended up taking her back. She decided that since it was too difficult for me to move out there, she said she would move out here to be with me. She applied for work out here. She saw a psychologist a few times, and then she wants to talk to me about something. She decided that instead of moving out here, she would rather stay and be with her family and just let me go and end our relationship. This was around the time that I was on anti-anxiety meds to deal with our relationship, so I was numb to the pain again. Now to my problem. What I've been noticing since this happened is that I have a general insecurity with trusting people to follow through with their plans. One friend had made plans to come over for a visit and I hadn't heard much from her, so I started panicking and asking her daily if she was still coming. I'm also starting to date again and constantly worried about the person I'm dating just disappearing or ending it all of a sudden. In fact, the latest woman I had become very close with made plans for a visit. We had wonderful conversations on the phone all week And then from out of nowhere, she texted me and she wanted to postpone our visit because she's not ready emotionally to get involved again and wants to slow things down. This after intense flirting and long heartfelt conversations. After she told me this, I panicked again. It felt like everything was happening all over again. Like I attract people who want to abandon me from out of nowhere. Now I feel too scared to date. It feels too risky of a situation to put myself into but I'm constantly weighing the fear of that risk with my strong desire for companionship and connection with a woman. It really hurts, and I don't know what to do. Close friends tell me not to take all of this personally. I didn't do anything wrong and just let it go. My rational brain agrees with this, but my heart tells me different. I do a lot of work on myself and always trying to learn what makes me tick. I'd appreciate any advice that you have on how I can get over this fear I have and also how to handle it when it does happen again so I don't go into another downward spiral. Thank you, Terry. Okay, Terry, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, That is a challenge, absolutely, especially if you are afraid to date because you think someone's going to leave you. When you bring that kind of fear into any relationship, they almost always leave you. I mean, there's the bottom line, but I know that doesn't help where you are. But bringing any type of Uh, insecurity or fear usually amplifies that insecurity or fear and it manifests into what it creates uh, in the sense of if you bring the fear of someone cheating on you and you have that fear throughout the relationship, the likelihood that it could manifest depending on the person you're with is usually greater. Now, that's a stretch, but um, if you look at your fear of someone leaving you, that's even more likely because someone that is somewhat healthy, whatever that uh, term means to you, emotionally healthy, is going to want to be with someone who has a certain level of trust and faith in the relationship and in them. 
And what happens when you bring fear and a lack of full trust is that your inability to trust them uh, bleeds into their perception of how they are perceived. That's hard to say, but (laughs) I think you know what I mean, is that if I was in a relationship with you and you had a fear of me leaving, your fear would actually drive my behavior. And that's important to remember because, like I said, whatever fears that you bring into the relationship are the same things that can manifest. Now, that doesn't mean you can be 100% fearless and have 100% faith and it still can't happen. The difference between someone who has 100% faith and is completely fearless and is just in the relationship believing everything's going to be fine always is that they usually have a better relationship. They usually enjoy it, and I hate to say it this way, while it lasts. (laughs) It could last for the rest of your lives, or it may not. But they are there. They are present. They are fully in the relationship, enjoying it, being with the person, 100% of them. And they give their entire being to the relationship. I don't want to make it sound like you're giving up anything. I'm saying that you're putting that full love and trust and faith that the relationship's going to work out. And when you bring that into the relationship, the relationship is usually a lot more enjoyable. Now, of course, that depends on who you're with. Like one of the things that you said is that uh, one of the women that you were with was manipulative. And I'm here to say, uh, and you know what I'm going to say, <laughs> manipulative people are very difficult to be in a relationship with, to be married to, to be dating, whatever. And you will usually be more unhappy than you are happy because manipulative people want to meet their own needs, usually regardless of your needs. They will manipulate people and circumstances and especially you to almost, I don't know, guilt you into meeting their needs. If I can guilt you and make you feel bad for doing things that don't meet my needs, then I am successfully manipulating you. So in your manipulative relationship, that would have happened regardless of your fears. Because when you discover someone's manipulative, then you have an opportunity to you know, address that with them or make them accountable or talk about it. If they truly are manipulative, then they're going to make you think you're crazy and whatever you bring up that they're doing, they're going to say, no, that's your fault and that's the reason it's happening. So you want to be clear that when you start feeling more crazy, more guilty, more responsible for all the bad stuff going on in the relationship, that you are likely being manipulated. I mean, I have to look at the situation individually, but you have to check in with yourself. Do I feel unhappy more than I'm happy? Am I made to feel responsible for things that go wrong? Am I made to feel guilty for things that go wrong? Does it seem like my partner has all the answers and that uh, no matter what I say, it turns out to be a misunderstanding on my part? Those are many signs of manipulation and I talk about it on a few other episodes. But uh, I wanted to bring that up because if you do end up with someone manipulative, then it doesn't matter what you bring into the relationship typically unless you're a very dominating person. This is the only time I've seen a relationship work with a manipulative person in it is when the other person is very dominating. 
<laughs> I'm not saying it works all the time, but I've seen that when someone is very dominating, they can actually create some sort of disciplinary structure for the manipulative person. That's probably not you. <laughs> it's probably not a lot of people that listen to this show. But um, in the rare cases where there's someone in a, a relationship that is manipulative, the only time I see it work and everyone's happy is that there's someone in that kind of control. If the manipulator is in control, it's usually a very unhappy situation. So, you know, there's some dysfunction in there, but <laughs> some relationships work the way they work. And I don't like to um, change those relationships if both people are happy. So there's that. Now, what you said uh, right at the beginning of your letter, which is you've been struggling with uh, involving things that trigger my fear of rejection and abandonment. Now, if you're bringing that into a relationship, your fears of rejection, your fears of abandonment, then just like I said at the beginning of this segment, that is typically what will manifest because that comes out of you and then the other person is perceiving that they either aren't trusted or there's some sort of reinforcement that they have to continue doing with you that puts them in a space that can become uncomfortable and eventually um, too, I don't know, redundant or um, overbearing or overwhelming. Like, how often do I have to convince you that I'm not going to leave? How often do I have to convince you that I'll be here for you? There's that aspect of it. There's also the aspect of, you're smothering me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I used to be a smotherer. <laughs> I'm one of those emotionally needy people, and I always used to like to cling or be around or stay close to my partner. Oh, you're going out with your friends? Uh, uh, when are you coming back? You know, I always had that uh, desperate attitude that I've talked about on other episodes. And that desperation can become overwhelming to someone. It can become too much. If you uh, heard my episode on when you feel you've given enough, like uh, you go to work and you give and give and give, and then you come home and you just want to relax and you don't have the energy to give to someone else. You just, you barely have the energy to give to yourself. But that's what you want to do. You want to come home, just give yourself what you need. Give yourself some space, some balance, and give yourself a break. But if you have someone that's emotionally needy and they are going, Oh, honey, you're home. Give me a kiss. Give me a hug. I want to be with you. Tell me all about your day. And they're not in a space to give more, even though it's just a very benign question or a very benign behavior. It's not like you're asking them to you know, move a couch down a flight of stairs. You're just wanting to see them and that's fine. That's all healthy behavior. It's all good for a relationship to want to see each other, to want to be with each other. But if there's an overbearing, an overwhelming amount of, I need you to give to me, I need from you. If that is always present, that becomes a repellent. That becomes something that um, it's the polar opposite of mag magnetivity, you know? You're either attracted or you are repelled. And you need to sometimes find out what is attracting to your partner and what is repelling. Because if you do more of something that is repelling to them, they will grow distant. They will start to disconnect. 
They will not want to share things with you as much or be with you as much. You will start feeling this in your heart. You will start、uh, seeing it in their behavior. You will start hearing it in their words. And it, it's important to remember that if you are wanting more than they have the ability to give in a certain moment, then that's when the overwhelming, overbearing part makes it hard for them to show up as you want them to show up. Now, this comes back to your insecurity and your fear of rejection and abandonment. Like, I fear someone's going to abandon me. So when I'm with someone, guess what kind of energy I'm exuding? Everything I do, everything I say is centered or at least stems from that foundation of rejection and abandonment. I am so afraid. So the next thing I'm going to do for my partner is I'm going to make them a big meal. And I hope they give me that wonderful look and that praise that I so need and desire to fulfill that emptiness inside of me or take away, relinquish those fears. Inside of me, I'm going to do this big thing for my partner. I'm going to clean the house, and when they come home, they're going to their eyes are going to get wide, and they go, "Wow, the house looks so great! Thank you so much." And then when you don't get it, you set yourself up for those feelings to amplify. And then when you have those feelings, you try to do the next big best thing, so that they hopefully will recognize it and relinquish that fear or insecurity inside of you. And the more you do that, the more the cycle continues. The more they feel repelled, the more、uh, you reinforce the fears inside of you because you didn't get what you were looking for. So that can go really deep, and it's not a matter of pushing through it and hoping that、uh, they change or the situation changes. It is a matter of doing what I believe you already know, which is healing. From that rejection, from that abandonment, one of the first things I always teach、uh, when it comes to any fears that you brought in, usually from childhood. I mean, there's probably something that you developed in childhood, some sort of fear of rejection and abandonment. The fear of rejection and abandonment could have come from your parents or some caretaker, or even a strong relationship of some sort、uh, when you were a child. The first thing I like to teach is that you have to fill. That gap inside, that、um, chasm, that emptiness that might be there, whatever the word is for you. When I think of me when I was younger in getting into relationships, I had the same thing. I had the fear of abandonment. Now my girlfriend would go out with her friends, and I'd ask、uh, the question, "Well,、uh, what time are you going to be back?" I wanted to know. I mean, that's a normal question, right? How about,、um, can you tell me where you'll be, just in case you know something happens? Now I'm starting to get that、um, desperate feeling, like, well, where is she going to be? Is she going to come back? That's that's all stemming from the fears that I had inside of me. This is where our behavior and our words, even though they can be seen as benign and pragmatic, it still stems from the fear inside and the combination of questions and behavior that you exhibit to your partner in the relationship. Is going to create a bigger picture. Manipulative relationships do this too. Whereas a single thing that a manipulative person says, or a single behavior that a manipulative person does, isn't necessarily、uh, manipulative. You can't pinpoint it. 
But over time, the culmination of all their words and behavior and then the outcomes that come from that, then you start to see a bigger picture of manipulation. It's the same thing when you are in a relationship where you bring in this fear. You start creating a bigger picture of, you know, it's great that you want to see me when I get home, but I just need you know, 15, 20 minutes or an hour to myself. So all this time that you've been, you know, coming up and you want this big kiss and hug, I need some space now. So, you know, at first it might not have been complained about, something like that might not have been complained about, but later on the the picture gets bigger and bigger and they start to see other behaviors from you portraying a bigger picture that you might have this foundation of fear. One of the first things that you do when you have a fear of rejection and abandonment is visit yourself as a child. This is some of that inner child work. You go back in time in your mind, uh, as the adult you are now, and visit yourself uh, around the first time you felt rejected or abandoned. You go back and ask that small child, what's going on in your life? And they might say, I'm I'm afraid so-and-so is going to leave me, or I'm afraid so-and-so doesn't love me, or I don't feel worthy, or I don't this, or I don't that. And then you have a little conversation with yourself, like, why? Well, why do you feel that way? Well, because so-and-so did this and they said this and I have these feelings about it. And then you, you act as a nurturing, supportive adult or caretaker to yourself. You might have to do this a few times as things come up for you. But what happens is if and when you don't do that for yourself, you look for what you're trying to fulfill from your partner now. And if that little little boy or little girl inside of you hasn't had those needs filled at that time in their life, then that quest is always going to be present today. And having that quest before you keeps that fear alive, keeps those insecurities alive. And guess what? If those insecurities stay and you never fill them as a child or you never heal from them today, then your relationships typically end up how they've always ended up. And it's usually not pleasant. It's usually reinforcing what you already quote knew, that they are going to leave me. They are going to abandon me. So the idea of this first step of visiting yourself in your mind and seeing yourself as this child and talking to yourself as this child, it helps you connect with uh, parts of your mind that you haven't looked at in a long time, or at least in this way. Because you can remember things in childhood that happened to you, especially impactful events, things where you didn't feel good. You can remember those things and go, well, you know, my mom did this and my dad said that. But what do you do about it? This is why that this process of visiting yourself, visiting that inner child, that one that learned how to feel bad, learned how to feel, in your case, Terry, rejected, abandoned, or learned how to fear rejection and abandonment. This is why it's important to go back as the adult you are today with the knowledge and the resources that you have today and try to fulfill those needs inside 
that little child's mind. I mean, it's all in you. It's not like this is really happening, although some people might believe it's true. (laughs) Some people might believe you're visiting another aspect of yourself in some other dimension or some other time. doesn't matter what the belief is. You take the resources and the knowledge and the love and support that you have, that you're capable of giving into the past and talk to that child inside of you, especially with rejection and abandonment. That's huge. That means that you didn't get the love and support that you deserved as a child. And you might even thought you didn't deserve it as you grew older. Like, I must not have been worthy enough. I must not have been lovable enough. And you don't want to take that with you anymore. And like you said, it's like I attract people who want to abandon me from out of nowhere. And um, that's pretty much true. Because what you bring into a relationship is usually complementary, especially in a dysfunctional way, with what someone else brings into the relationship with you. It's sort of like uh, manipulative people are very much attracted to uh, kind, caring, compassionate, giving, uh, people-pleasing people. Because they know they can get their manipulative ways and needs met. They know they can get their dysfunctions met. And the people-pleasing, caring, giving person is also getting their needs met too, Because they want to be able to provide love and support to someone who really wants to take it. But as you've probably heard me say before, that doesn't last long. Maybe two, maybe three months go by and the caring, giving, people-pleasing person starts to feel drained. Like, oh, it's I'm, I'm never getting anything back out of this. There's no reciprocation. And the manipulative person who's always taking and getting their own needs met in a dysfunctional way is going, wow, I'm getting everything I want. And they drain the other person. And this is what happens when your relationships keep failing. It's because one of you is getting drained or both of you are getting drained. But what you are bringing into the relationship, any type of dysfunction, usually has a complementary side to it. The one who fears abandonment might find someone who's super loyal and dependable. And that works at first. But then that loyal, dependable person starts to feel the overwhelm and also starts to feel perhaps untrusted. Like, why don't you just trust that this relationship's going to work out? Why are you always trying to over-impress me? Why are you always so close to me? Why don't you give me some space? I feel smothered. This is just an extreme example, but it can happen, and it does happen. I've done this. (laughs) I've smothered my exes before, and uh, it gets too much for them. I didn't see it then, but I see it now that I've healed from this because of, I don't like the term inner child, but I use it anyway because of the inner child work that I did, and because of some of the acceptances that I chose to have in my life. For example, when I got divorced, I accepted that it was okay to be single. That was hard (laughs) because I had those same insecurities that you have, Terry. I had a fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of not being loved, fear that I was going to be in a relationship and everything was going to go great and they were going to leave, fear of a lot of things. I mean, some of those got healed during my marriage, but I still had those fears and I decided, you know what? I don't like these fears and they always come up Uh, Because I'm in a relationship or when I'm in a relationship for sure. So how am I going to fix this? 
and I realized I'm going to be okay being single until I'm ready. I'm going to be okay being single. And I chose that. I chose to be single, even though I had these fears. It was totally against my belief system. (laughs) I believed that I had to have someone in my life to create happiness, to create wholeness, to fulfill me. And I went against that belief system. And I came to an acceptance of, I need to be here for me. I need to do what I need to do for me. That's what I want you to do. I need you to do something for you. I need you to be there for you. I need you to embrace you. I need you to support you. And you might be thinking, I've done all that. I do that all the time. If that's true and you still have the fears, then it sounds like you may not have uh, accepted that it's okay to be alone. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Alone. I'm so alone. I feel so alone. I want to be with someone. And some of us have gone through that. Some people I've heard from have been alone for years. And they're like, I'm ready to date. I want to be with someone. I believe I've gotten over my fears. I believe I'm ready to date. We're all the eligible people in my life. And I gave some advice on another episode on that. You know, you, you find people usually with like minds when you do like-minded things. You go to meetups, you create meetups, you um, gather with friends and then friends of friends, uh, you're bowling or whatever. That's a huge uh, subject matter for a different episode. But you know when you're ready because A, there's no desperation and B, there's a wanting but not a needing. I want to be with someone else. But you know what? I don't need to be with someone who makes me feel bad about myself. I want to be with someone else, but I don't need someone who puts me down. I don't need someone who judges me. I don't need someone who manipulates me. I want to be with someone. I want to be with someone healthy. But I don't need you if you're not going to love me the way I deserve. If you can get to that place in yourself, you're going to bring that into the relationship. It's a confidence in knowing what you want and not settling for something that isn't what you want. That's what we do, right? We sometimes go, well, there's nothing better. I'm just going to settle and do this for a while because I have to be in a relationship. When you have that attitude, I have to be in a relationship, that's when you tend to settle more. Now, let me let you off the hook a little bit. Just because you accept being alone is okay doesn't mean you end up alone. It just means you're okay with it, which means either way, alone or in a relationship, you're still okay. You start off okay before a relationship begins. In my life, when I chose to be alone and I was okay with it and I was completely happy, I think this has happened twice in my life. (laughs) I said, you know what? I'm okay being alone. It's fine. The most healing took place after my marriage ended when I chose to be alone. But I, I became okay with being alone. And as soon as I did that, the right person showed up. And I don't know if that's a spiritual thing a cosmic uh, balance in the universe, like, ah, you're ready. Here's someone that you can spend time with. I don't know what happens there. (laughs) But I know that when I've been ready, it's usually something that happened to me instead of me happening to it. So let me finish up your letter, Terry. It says, um, close friends tell me not to take it all personally. I didn't do anything wrong and just let it go. That's hard to do. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know that it's not easy to just let things go because you do take it personally because your needs aren't being fulfilled and you believe that you are the cause of what's happening. So how do you let go of something when you believe you're the cause of what's happening? I think the first question to ask yourself is how do I get in this type of relationship in the first place? What signs did I miss? And, you know, I've already talked about this, but, you know, looking inward and asking yourself, am I bringing any type of neediness or desperation in a relationship? I'm not saying it's bad to have those things. I think having needs and being desperate can have some reward when those needs are fulfilled, when you're desperate for something and you get it. That can be fulfilling, but it also is setting yourself up for failure. If you're desperate for something and you do things to fulfill your needs, then the desperation goes away, but then it comes back. Then you do more things to try to fulfill your needs and it doesn't work that time. Now you're feeling bad about yourself. This is that uh, that foundation inside of you. That's the inner child. That's the person who's bringing the pain from the past, the wounds, the emotional wounds from the past into today and expecting other people to heal you through their behavior, through their actions. And really, no one can do it unless they are skilled at doing things like that. Uh, It's very difficult to find someone that can heal old emotional wounds like that. Uh, I mean, it is possible, but usually not in a relationship, usually with uh, counseling, therapy, coaching, etc., then you find someone that can help you heal those wounds or you yourself healing those wounds, which is a lot of the things I've done in my life is go inside, talk to that little boy and figure out what's going on with you. And especially asking the question, uh, which I didn't say before, but it's an important question. What do you need? I mean, you ask that little child, what do you need? And then you give that little child what he or she needs. You may not be able to give everything at first, but you give as you can. It's sort of like if uh, your best friend says, oh, this terrible thing is happening to me. It's not like you can give them a solution, but you can be there. You can support them. You can listen. And sometimes that's all it takes for them to get through the hard stuff. And that's what you're doing for that little child inside of you. So I don't think it's a matter of just letting it go all good intentions, but I think that you do have to address it. I don't think it's something that you just let go. I do think it would be great if we could just push through that stuff. I mean, sometimes you can. Sometimes you get pushed through it and find a better path beyond that. But if there's still something inside of you that needs healing, it needs to be addressed. And the last thing you said is, I'd appreciate any advice that you may have on how I can get over this fear and uh, how to handle it if and when it does happen again so I don't go into another downward spiral. And uh, it's pretty much what I talked about through this entire segment is everything that I've already said, but let's just say that it happens again. I want you to use that opportunity to ask yourself questions like, why am I feeling this way? Why does it matter so much? Why am I so hurt when someone leaves me or someone rejects me or someone whatever? Why am I feeling this way? And the initial answers are usually because it hurts, because I want this for me. Yeah, but why? Why specifically do you want this for you? Because I want to be loved. 
Well, why do you want to be loved? This is where you start drilling down. Well, I want to be loved because if I'm not loved, I feel pain. Why do you feel pain if you're not loved? And you start asking yourself even more specific questions. And you keep drilling until you uncover, unravel this tight grip that you have on this fear. Because that's what's happening is that you have such a tight grip on this fear because what if it happens? And I like to go in a direction of, okay, what if it does happen? Well, if it happens, then, oh, I'll feel this way. Why? Why will you feel that way? You become your own therapist, your own questioning process. And, you know, as you talk to that child inside of you, that's going to uh, reveal a lot as well. So, Terry, this is what I have for you today. I hope this is a beginning. I hope this is a start for you to get to a better place inside of you. And I want you to remember that uh, these fears that you have, they probably started at a very young age. They probably started with someone else in your life that um, you may need to talk to them as well. You may not be able to talk to them, actually. They may not be here anymore. They may not be alive anymore. They may not be emotionally available. They may not want to talk about it. I mean, some people, it doesn't matter what you say to them, like, I'm so mad at you and they just don't care or they just can't connect with you. So there's nothing you can do about it, which means, you know, there's another process that you can do. It's kind of also weird and it's talking to them in your mind as well, whether they're alive or dead and saying what's on your mind. How come you never held me when I was hurt? How come you never loved me? How come you never supported me? How come I felt so unimportant with you? How come you think I'm so worthless? That's a powerful question. This is stuff that you visualize in your mind to help you understand better. Not that you're talking to them in some psychic way or something, but to find out what answers and resources come up for you when you do it. It's a process and there's some pain involved, but there's also a lot of healing involved. So I hope it heals you. I hope it helps you, Terry. And I hope it helps you listening to the show because we are now out of time. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. We're going to go to some thank yous. I'm going to give you my closing words and we'll end the show right after this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I want to thank today's sponsor, Scott Allen Turner. Go to scottallenturner.com forward slash brain and get a free audiobook called 99 Minute Millionaire. Yes, he's a millionaire. <laughs> and he's going to tell you how to do it. Just go to that website, scottallenturner.com forward slash brain and listen to the free audiobook now. And I want to tell you about the A to Z of self-empowerment. Yes, it's the Overwhelmed Brain book, Personal Growth for Critical Thinkers. Just imagine, I don't know, all 100 and, what, so far, 180 episodes of this show packaged in a sequential format that is like a formula that you can follow that uh, leads you down a road to self-empowerment. I want you to be self-empowered. I want you to be able to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the outcomes that you want in life. If you've already bought it, then you know what I'm talking about. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite bookstore now and get The Overwhelmed Brain, Personal Growth for Critical Thinkers, Physical Book. You can also get the uh, 
ebook as well, but I personally like physical books better. <laughs> I love audio. I love listening to it. Uh, but just having a physical book that I can sit with without any technology, it sometimes gives me a break. I don't know. Maybe it's the electromagnetic frequencies. Who knows? <laughs> and I want to thank you. If you're in the patron program, go to patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com and you can get uh, private episodes, worksheets, group training, and even um, email coaching. And of course, you're supporting the show. And that's huge to keeping this thing going. This thing that I call the overwhelmed brain. Thank you, patron members. And if you're using the Amazon link at theoverwhelmedbrain.com, thank you too. That has been a large part of what has kept this show going since day one. I appreciate you. Go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com, use the Amazon link, drag it to your desktop. Anytime you order from Amazon, order through that link and it sends us pennies on the dollar. It sounds like a little bit, but it adds up and it's exactly what we need to pay for all the technology and the hosting and all this crazy internet stuff that we all have to deal with. And I appreciate you for doing it. And finally, I want to thank Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in the overwhelmed brain. I want to close the show with an interesting process, method, technique <laughs> thing that one of my friends told me about. And this is what it is. She actually writes a letter. Now, regardless of your beliefs, just hear me out. <laughs> she actually writes a letter to God and says, Dear God, all this crap is happening in my life. This is happening. This is happening. I don't know what to do. Can you give me any guidance? You know, I've shortened the letter. <laughs> but she lays out everything that's going on in her life, puts all the troubles out there, put everything that she's thinking about, which uh, I love, actually. I love the idea of writing all this stuff out, everything going on in your life. But she directs it to God. And you can direct it to Abraham Lincoln or whoever you want, for all I care. <laughs> it all depends on what your beliefs are. Uh, but she uses God. And it's pretty neat because this allows you to connect with what's going on inside of you uh, at a slower uh, pace than your brain moves. Meaning, you can think about all the stuff going on inside of you and it can flash by in seconds. Oh, I got these, I got this bill, and it makes me feel this way, and this, and this, and all this stuff just flashes by. But when you have to write it down, it slows everything down. It makes you be more articulate and detailed about what's happening and how you feel. And when you do it this way, sometimes, many times, things are revealed. And not only are they revealed, but you also get to process and think about them more because your brain is slowing down. And that's a good thing. I think it's, you know, it's hard. It can be very painful writing about some of the crap that's going on in your life, but it's a good thing because you're slowing down your brain to make some of the stuff going on in your life more understandable and sometimes even harder to deal with. That can happen too. But the idea that you're just detailing it and putting it into words really helps your brain slow things down and uh, tell you almost everything that's going on inside of you. So that's her step one is she writes it out, which I'm definitely an endorser of. I love writing out what's going on in my life if I can't figure something out. Because sometimes you come up with words, you're like, oh, yes, that's what I feel. Or, oh, that's what's going on. And sometimes you'll figure it out as you write it out. Like, oh, maybe I can do this to get through this. 
And so it can be very helpful to write that out. But like I said, her process is, dear God, this is what's happening in my life. Is there anything I can do or is there anything you can tell me that might help me get through this? And I was like, that's pretty cool. And then she told me step two. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, that could be effective. Her step two is writing herself a letter from God. That's wild because what that does, uh, there's something called perceptual positions that I learned in my trainings a while back where you see yourself in a memory through your own eyes or you see as if you're looking at yourself from a distance in that memory. You know, something happened, something maybe awful happened and you see that memory the same way every time. You, You recall it the same way every time. But what if you were looking through the eyes of someone else in that memory? What if you were looking through the eyes of the person that was making you feel bad or hurting you? What would it look like then? What if you were looking through someone else's eyes? What if you were looking from the ceiling down at yourself? All these different positions and perceptions that you could have. What would you think then? How would it look then? There's all these different ways that you can recall the memory. And it's pretty interesting. But imagine if God or whoever you wrote to wrote back. You writing it out gives you an infinitesimally different position. It's a different perception. Her name's, um, oh, I can't say her name. <laughs> I didn't ask her permission, so I'm going to call her uh, Cindy. And she'll write, Dear Cindy this is God, or I don't think she'll write that, but (laughs) she'll write, thank you for writing. This is what I suggest you do. And then she'll come up with a lot of stuff. And she says when she does this, she always gets the answer she's looking for. And many times she doesn't like the answer (laughs) she gets because she knows God is right, even though she's writing it. She just knows that what God is telling her is the right thing to do because uh, some of the stuff she doesn't want to do. You know how you disagree with good advice just because, oh, that means I have to do that. It's like me telling you, okay, the most evil person in your life that's ever been, I want you to go up to that person and honor yourself for the first time ever. (laughs) You won't like that advice. But uh, if you are going to get to a new level of enlightenment, a new level of mental evolution, That would certainly take you there, but that's a huge, huge step. So when she starts writing this letter from God, she might get some huge steps that she doesn't want to take, but she knows that maybe she should if she needs to get through it. And uh, she told me that uh, one time I started writing to God and God came through right away before I even wrote the letter back to myself. (laughs) And I heard, this is what you need to do. She goes, oh, I get it, I get it. I hear you loud and clear. So I really think that's a powerful exercise. Again, regardless of belief, whoever you want to write to, dear higher self, dear future self, dear angels, dear cosmic being in the sky, dear planet Jupiter, (laughs) whatever you think is all-knowing and omnipresent. Now, uh, for you atheists... Well, (laughs) look at it this way. You can look at your life today and and know that you know more than you did yesterday. 
So just think about your life tomorrow and maybe that's who you should write to. That's, that's what I mean by future self. If I were to look back and give myself advice, what would I say? So however you want to do that, I think it's a, a very powerful exercise and um, a great way to figure something out and a great way to reveal a resource that you may not know you have. Pretty neat. If you come up with something wild, let me know. <laughs> and like everything in this show, doing this process takes an open mind. So I want you to keep that in mind and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.